in the case of people who end up losing their faith, part of what is driving them is that now that inherited or intuition that has been placed into them that they need to know the truth and they can't ignore the evidence or what looks like to be evidence that contradicts what they think that they believe. So stage four is a, is a tough place to be. Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm a professor here at Biola, as well as the uh, director of the Office of Faith and Learning. And I'm also participating in the Winsome Conviction Project with my good friend, Tim Yohoff. Hi, my name is Tim Yohoff. I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project, along with Rick. I'm also a professor of communication at Biola University. And one of the great things about being at Biola is you get to meet some amazing people, start up friendships. So we have one of our friends and colleagues, John Marriott. Uh, John serves at Biola University as the Research and Program Coordinator for Biola University's Center for Christian Thought. Man, what a great program, Rick. Yes, The Center indeed. for Christian Thought uh, is an amazing group, and you can certainly check out their website, uh, check out what they're doing. He also teaches in the Department of Philosophy. He's a former pastor. He holds a Ph.D. from the Cook School of Intercultural Studies. His dissertation focused on deconversion. From Christianity to Atheism, it's a topic has been a lifelong pursuit of him. He's the author of three books on deconversion, A Recipe for Disaster, How the Church Contributes to the Deconversion Crisis, The Anatomy of Deconversion, Key Ways to a Lifelong Faith in a Culture Abandoning Christianity, and then last, Going, Going, Gone, Why Believers Lose Their Faith and What Can Be Done to Guard Against It. John, welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. You have, you have arrived. You're thank at your you. pinnacle. Yes, yes, thank you. This is it. I've been, this is, I can check this off my bucket list now. Yes. I hope you had a yeah. long bucket list to get down to oh, that. But. Oh, no, this was right at the top, right okay, at the top. good. One of the things that actually we care an awful lot about and we like to emphasize is that we're concerned not about civility per se. Well, we are concerned about civility, but we call it the Winsome Conviction Project for a reason. We really care about conviction. We care about Christian conviction, and we believe in effect that in the absence of real, authentic Christian conviction, we won't have actually real Christians. It is our convictions that make our faith a reality. So, when you write a book about deconversion and people, in effect, losing their Christian convictions, you get our attention. No, John, seriously, uh, long before I met you, I read your book, A Recipe for Disaster, Four Ways Churches and Parents Prepare Individuals to Lose Their Faith and How They Can Instill a Faith That Endures, and I'm just a fan of yours. The book is expertly written, uh, very compassionate, uh, research-based, and it absolutely caught my attention. And I knew you were an adjunct here at Biola, so I just called up and said, we got to have coffee, because I'm parents of three uh, sons. And the statistics you shared, John, are just um, frightening, I will say, and disturbing. Let me just read some very quickly. John just did a great blog post for the Christ Animated Learning blog that is sponsored by the Christian Scholars Review. Please check it out. But in it, you say this, and we just want to ask you about this, John, because it's so disturbing that you almost want to say this just can't be true, that this just cannot be the reality we're looking at. But you mentioned a couple of things very quickly. In 2015, the Pew Research Center reported that for every individual who becomes a Christian, four leave. I mean, think about that for a minute. And then uh, the Pine Tops Foundation in 2018 claimed that over the next 30 years, Christian affiliation in the U.S. 
will decline by 1 million per year, which means that between 30 and 42 million young people raised in Christian families who, who call themselves Christians will say that they are not by 2050. And the researchers surmised this. While it is hard to find clear data, as far as we can tell, this is the single largest generational loss of souls in history who are nominally raised in the church and no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. Well, John, that catches our attention and scares us. What do you make of these statistics, and can you clarify them at all uh, for us? I hope so. The statistics are not, these stats that you just read are consistent with just about everything I think that's come out over the last uh, 15 years when it comes to how many people identify as Christians, the amount of folks who are staying, the amount of folks who are leaving. In 2009, the Pew Research Center said that young people are leaving religion at five to six times the historic rate, and that seems Mm. like it's only gone up since then. So it's not as though... I cherry-picked a few stats. The stats are uniform and consistent across the board when it comes to religious affiliation. Now, this is, uni- this is in some ways, um, specific to the West and in the United States. Christianity in other parts of the world is growing, and, and that's an important thing to note. But here in the United States, we certainly are becoming a much more secular culture. We are having a hard time uh, having folks maintain and continue values that have traditionally and historically been part of the Christian narrative in a culture that doesn't esteem those values anymore. And and um, the other thing that I would say uh, about the numbers is that there's one word that was used in that last quote from the Pine Tops Foundation that I think is important. They said that um, that this is the largest generational loss of souls in history who were nominally raised in the mm. church. And, and I think that that's important to, yeah. to point out because mm. um, it, it does seem, and I think that most of our listeners would uh, be on the same page here, that there's a lot of people in the United States who would identify as a Christian, but when if you were to drill down much uh, a little bit further than just the surface veneer, you might suspect that they really haven't come to a real saving understanding mm. of who Jesus is. Therefore, a, a lot of the numbers here might just be reflecting people who um, identified as a Christian on a survey, who came from a home that wasn't Muslim or Jewish and, and historically would have maybe had some church attendance, but, uh, but no longer are they willing to identify in that way. That's, the, that's I think, a bulk of the folks. But then there is a, a whole other um, source of information other than just these statistics. There are uh, thousands, ten thousands, tens of thousands uh, of, of deconversion narratives mm. that are online. And I've read hundreds of these <clears throat> and interviewed dozens of people who sit across the table from me and they weren't nominal in their faith. They were former missionaries, worship leaders, some of whom were pastors, others who were just very committed, seminary grads, etc., and, and, and those are the really troubling stories, I think. And that seems to be one of the things from reading your book. It seemed like you clearly kind of at the outset bracketed a whole bunch of issues about this large nominal group. And that does tend to inflate the statistics or shape those. But the really intriguing thing about what you did was to say, let's forget about that part for a moment and talk about the people who you would say had an authentic Orthodox belief, whether or not their departure from the faith. We we aren't really having a discussion about eternal security here. Were they not saved at all before, but they had kind of visible outward signs? That's kind of a separate question. The point is, what happened and why was it that their faith proved not to be durable? 
So perhaps you could give us a quick glimpse of, of that. What is it that, that you found as you were talking to folks? Sure. And if, if I could just step back, uh, once, take one step back and just say that the issue that you raise about eternal security is always one that comes up in this discussion. Mm. And there will be um, uh, uh, some folks from a particular theological strain that will say this issue is not relevant to us because we don't believe that a real Christian can ever lose their salvation. Right. So they weren't saved. So why are we worrying about what caused them to, to depart? And to, to that, I would say that the Apostle Paul, in that same tradition, that same maybe Reformed reading of Scripture, um, would have been very convinced about the sovereignty of God in election and predestination and 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 having a, and drawing people unto salvation, and yet he himself went above and beyond in trying to make sure that he placed no offense or stumbling block in, towards the people that he was presenting the gospel. So he really felt he had a part to play in making sure that the gospel was clearly heard, even though on a reformed, a strongly reformed reading, that it's all of God. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to. Uh, loss of faith and deconversion, even if we believe that you can't lose your salvation once you're saved, you're eternally secure and you will persevere until the end, we, like the Apostle Paul, should still want to avoid putting pitfalls and barriers in front of folks that will give them a crisis of faith, even though it may not lead to their loss of faith. And so that's why I think this is this research and things that uh, I've discovered are helpful for everybody in the church, not just for people who think, wow, I don't want my child to to lose their salvation, we should say, I don't want my child to have a massive spiritual crisis that while they make it into the kingdom and they're there eternally, um, they, they went through a ton of struggles to get there. Yeah. So that's the first thing yeah, I, I exactly. think I'd like to say about that. Uh, some of the things that I've discovered that cause people or that are at least causal factors in why people lose their faith is that the, the, the main thing is that they just come to the conclusion that it's just not true, mm. right? They, they've come to the place where they say, I don't believe this anymore. And then they list the reasons why. And those reasons are almost um, exclusively in three different categories. One, there's intellectual reasons. Two, there are reasons um, that we might call value reasons. And three, there are experiential mm. reasons. And, and when we think of intellectual reasons, we think of problems with the Bible. Uh, we think that maybe the, the apologetics uh, doesn't support the belief. Maybe there's not enough evidence. When we come to values, we think of things like, well, how could I believe in a God who would send people to a place like hell that I right. read about? Or what about what he did with the Canaanites? Or what about biblical, historical, traditional positions on LGBTQ plus issues? And and um, we say, I, if, if that's what the Bible teaches, then I can't line up with that. Right. I can't affirm yeah. that. And then lastly, the experiential reasons would be perhaps being let down by God. Some expectations that he had that, peop that, that, uh, that people had of God that he didn't meet. And, and being hurt by the church. Those would be the, the, the three yeah. broad categories. That's a great overview. Thanks. And then you talked about, I thought this was fascinating about the stages of faith, John. When I read this, uh, I really took note of this. And I thought it was really helpful. Uh, do you want me to read those or can you do sure. those off the top of your head? Yeah, no, go ahead and read okay. them, please. Stage one generally occurs around preschool. At this stage, ideas about God are largely absorbed from the adults in a youngster's life. I think of my, I would grow up in a non-Christian family. My three kids grew up in a Christian family where God was always the backdrop, right? Um, second stage begins to develop in school-age children. Their faith and beliefs about God are more logical than those of persons in stage one, um, they are able to make distinctions between fantasy and reality, but will take many of the stories and symbols of their faith very literally. Then you get to stage three, 
At this stage, an individual's belief system is largely taken for granted. That is, they do not realize that their belief system is one of many possible takes on the world. For them, it's just a description of the way things are. Literal reflection or critical analysis occurs at stage three, and authority rests largely with religious teachers, right? And then stage four is characterized by a time of uh, intellectual and emotional upheaval that can go on for whatever reasons, meeting gay friends who seem sincere in their Christian faith. It may be learning about evolution uh, in a high school class or a college classroom. And this is a time of great upheaval. And then you say, once you hit stage four, you can never go back. It's like, okay, I, I've encountered all these things, and now I have to deal with them in one way or another. I can't go back to stage three where things were so much uh, easier. And then you get back to um, stage five, right? Faith survives but is now marked by an inability to live with the apparent contradictions and ambiguities that stage four had raised without needing necessarily a solution to them. So, John, to me, that was really helpful uh, because at Biola University, we see students navigating stage four sometimes, or high school students, and most people don't know what to do at that stage. They, they don't have a conception of how to handle the doubt, the challenges, um, they're confused, and so help us understand a little bit about particularly stage four. Sure. As you're reading that, I was thinking back as to when, when I was writing that in, in my experience growing up. And I grew up in a um, small, not small, but a you know, medium-sized town in northern Ontario, about five mm -hmm. hours north from where you grew up. And, um, and I, it, was very, it was somewhat remote. We didn't have uh, a lot of uh, religious options. Mm -hmm. Everyone I knew was a Christian. My grandmother, who was the most significant Christian influence in my life, came from uh, an even smaller community and uh, had never met really anybody outside of, of that came from a very fundamentalist, uh, in, in many ways, legalistic church environment. But she had no reason to question the truth of it because she never encountered anyone who held any other view. And she might have known that there were people on the other side of the world who believed in other things, but they were no threat to her or, or ever caused her to doubt because she never experienced them uh, mm. personally. And it was very much, it was very easy for her to trust in her authority figures. And they would tell her that, well, no, that's, they're, they're wrong because that's not what the Bible teaches. And that was fine for her. Yeah. And that was fine for me for a really long time. And then I started to have this sort of this, uh, you know, I started increasing in kind of the stage four where I started to think, wow, what, what about these folks that I met at high school who aren't Christians? I have a, had a Muslim friend and then, uh, you know, I had a professor who uh, taught us about evolution and he made yeah. these arguments for it. And then these all started to cause me to have this cognitive dissonance in my brain about how could I believe what I, was true? Um, and, and yet these people were nice people and they were good people. And, and there was no flexibility in my theology whatsoever mm -hmm. for them to fit in. They either were um, 100% right or they were 100% wrong, and, and I had to figure out which one it was. And there's a, a myriad of, of issues that came my way. And so I think people who are in, in stage three, in some ways it's kind of a nice place to be. You know, if you're not troubled by doubt and you're not influenced by the culture that surrounds you and you're very um, either... You're, you're, you're insecure enough that you can trust in authority figures that are really strong and that give you a great sense of confidence, then in some ways that's enviable. Or if you're someone who is incredibly self-confident and very secure in your opinions and you can stay in stage three, you lack a sense of 
turmoil and you might have a sense of contentment and, mm-hmm. and peace about what you believe. And and I would never want to drive someone out of that experience, especially if what they're believing is true largely. But it's for those people who go into stage four who have a really hard time going back to stage three because the toothpaste is already out of the tube and you yeah. can't really put it back in. You can't say, oh, I didn't hear that evidence for <laughs> evolution in yeah. my class. And yeah. I didn't hear those criticisms of the Bible when I went to university. And I can't ignore those anymore, especially if I care about truth. And this is where we do a really good job in the evangelical world because we are always m- making an argument that truth is paramount. But in the case of people who end up losing their faith, part of what is driving them is that now that inherited or intui- intuition that has been placed into them that they need to know the truth and they can't ignore the evidence or what looks like to be evidence that is in that 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 contradicts what they think that they believe. So stage four is a is a tough place to be. And so that's kind of an indication of the dangers of what you might call intellectual blinders. You know, you think about blinders you put on a horse, like mm-hmm. in horse racing, exactly so you can't see what's going. Just focus on on what's there, which is great if you happen to be driving a horse in a horse race. But if you're actually living a Christian life and are trying to follow Jesus' command to be in the world but not of the world, you don't have the luxury of those blinders oftentimes. Depending, great point about your, your grandma. Depending a little bit on where you live and who yeah. you hang out with, and we don't need to give people a disease they don't have. Correct. But for many of us, you bump into these things all the time and then to say, oh, I either have to abandon this notion that I'm really committed to the truth or I have to engage information that pushes back against my perception of it. Yeah. So let me add a personal note. And then, Rick, you you said something I want to, I don't know, maybe push back on just a little bit. So let me tell you my stage four experience. I'm on on staff with the Christian ministry. I just got engaged to my wife. And I love apologetics. I mean, I I would read all the apologetics books from Lewis to Josh McDowell, J.P. Moreland. Somebody sends me a book, and to this day, I have no idea who sent it to me. It came, and it was called, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? It was a debate between Antony Flew, who's one of the top uh, British atheists, and Gary Habermas, who's one of our top evangelical defenders of the resurrection. Well, I got this thing. It was like, awesome. I devour it in one weekend. And walk away saying, okay, at bare minimum, it was a draw. But I really think Anthony Flew kind of carried the day. I think he kind of, I was on the debate team in college, so I can kick into debater's mode. And I'm, I'm reading this going, man, these are really good points Anthony Flew made. And then what happened next is what I want to ask you about. I went to my Christian friends. Now, again, I'm, I'm, on, I'm a full-time Christian minister. And said to him, hey, I read a really disturbing book where this guy made these points about the resurrection. John, here's what I got from virtually everybody. Dude, you, you do know the resurrection is like the hallmark of the Christian faith. And if it didn't happen, we don't have a faith. And I was like, as if it was like, oh, yeah, hey, thank you for that <laughs> reminder. I had totally forgotten that point. Everywhere I went, it was shut down. There was nowhere for me to go that I could, I, could, I could raise these issues. And so then you're forced inward. Now, just a really cool part of the story. Um, at the time, I'm working at a university where Edwin Yamamuchi teaches. He's one of our great historical um, experts when it comes to the faith, particularly Persian history. So I go to his office, knock on the door, walk in, sit down. I say to him, now this is after weeks of devastation where I'm, I'm literally holding stage four internally. 
like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with this because the toothpaste is out of, out of the, the paste is out of the tube, right? Sit down. I said to Dr. Yamamuchi, I said, uh, I read, did Jesus rise from the dead? The debate between Habermas and flu. First words out of his mouth. Wow. Uh, flu had a good day, didn't he? And I was like, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. He goes, well, that's okay. We don't, we, you know, we have good debates, bad debates and stuff. And I said, well, it's, it's really concerning. And then he guided me through an entire year, John, of helping me understand textual criticism, uh, the arguments for and against the resurrection, but never judged me, never said, hey, you're a full-time Christian worker. What are you doing kind of freaking out about this, right? So, John, just for a second comment on um, how should we treat people who are in stage four? And then, Rick, I want you to respond to, but is it good to leave them in stage three? John, I want you to respond to this as well. I mean, life was great at stage three. But then when I got stage four, I ultimately came to stage five stronger. But are we doing a service to people to keep them from some of the really hard questions? So uh, that's a whole lot, a cathartic moment. I'll pay you later. (laughs) Um, But what's your response to people that are, how should we treat people that are in four? And should we keep people in three away from crucial questions and books that might usher them into four? Last night I was reading... um, uh, on a website, ex-Christian website, uh, a deconversion story. Mm. And the woman started off by telling uh, you know, her background and explaining where she came from. And then she started to say, I started having all these doubts and I started to have all these questions. And so I began to ask the people in my church the questions. And I was told that doubt was a sign of sin and might even be unbelief. And then she said, I, I had to mm. shut all of that down. Because mm. if, if that's what it means to have faith, which is what God wants, and, and having faith means being certain and not questioning, then I want to do what God wants. But eventually it got to the point where she couldn't maintain that. She couldn't keep the beach ball submerged underneath the water any longer. And eventually it just popped up. And then all of those doubts and questions came out and there was no one there to answer them. And she already had felt like a failure because she was, was having them. Mm. I think that we need to help folks. um, I, I think we, well, let me back up and say, I think that we need to realize that because of the world that we live in, specifically the internet and the influence that it has on, on faith and on the way that people think and the ability that people have to get information about their faith, that we will have more and more and more folks mm. who are having these kinds of questions. I remember I was a pastor in Northern Ontario one Saturday afternoon. I was online. I was looking something up and I came across a Muslim website and on it, it said, do you know that there are three times as many variants in the New Testament texts as there are words in the entire New Testament that you have in your hand? And what that meant was, out of all of the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament, that there are about 400,000 variations in those copies, and we only have about 125,000 words in the entire New Testament. So how could you ever be confident that what you're reading in the New Testament is, is reliable uh, and records what actually the original said? And I thought, oh, wow, I had never heard that before. Mm. It was troubling, but I, had, I knew enough to say there's probably some response to this. But no one ever would have gotten that information in the past unless they had gone to seminary. No one had ever would have gotten that information in the past unless they had run into 
or uh, you know, or picked up a, a book on the on the matter. But the, the the problem that we've had is is that we have been in a courtroom where only the prosecution has been making the case for like the last half century, Ooh, right? Yeah. You have apologetics ministries, you have church on Sunday, there are publishing houses, there are television networks, television shows, all making the case for Christianity. And there is no atheist publishing houses, there are no atheist television networks, there are no atheist television shows that people could ever hear the counter side of. I, I, I had a Christian bookstore within a five-minute bike ride of my home. I would walk in, I would look on the shelf, Tons of apologetic literature. I would read all of that, feel incredibly confident in what I believed, and walk out and think, if only people had this information, they would all become Christians. Wow. All right. We have done a wonderful job here in setting up the issue and the problem. Um, and uh, But we're it, out of time. Sorry, parents. We're done. <laughs> uh, youth pastors, we just ran out of time. So I have a different way of wrapping this up. My response was, if that doesn't motivate you to come back for the second part of this yeah. conversation, I don't yeah. know what would. Yeah. Because yeah. the point, obviously, here is not to, to just do an analysis of why we have suddenly discovered a batch of, of influence that are crumbling Christian conviction, but at, to stop and think, so what do we do about that? So we're going to pick up the same thread, uh, but we'll uh, pick that up in the next podcast. But thanks for hanging around uh, with us today, John, and we will be uh, continuing this really, really important conversation uh, with, with our next next podcast. And we'd like to thank you all for joining us on the Winston Conviction Podcast. Uh, it's a thing that we'd love to have you subscribe to. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or wherever it is you like to get your podcast or check us out at winsomeconviction.com. So thanks for joining us. And Canadian listeners, we love you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs>